Welcome to Healthcare Du Jour, where we dish up and digest the latest in healthcare. For the next 30 minutes, sit back as we bring you insight, commentary, and discussion on trending topics to the table, all expertly served up by our host and his guests. Healthcare Du Jour is brought to you by Carium, the telehealth platform enabling healthcare's digital transformation, helping you care for people within the fabric of their daily lives. Now here's your host, Matt Fisher. Welcome back, and thank you for joining as we dive into the hottest topics in healthcare. I'm your host, Matt Fisher. On the menu today is Dr. Benjamin Miller, president at Wellbeing Trust. Dr. Miller, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. So what I always like to do before getting into the main part of my conversation is give my guests more of a chance to provide an introduction in terms of who they are and what they do. So Dr. Miller, the floor is yours. Oh, well, wonderful. Well, again, thank you for the opportunity. So I am a clinical psychologist by training. I've been in this field for a little over 20 years now, working to try and bridge this massive gap between healthcare and mental health. So I started my career early on as a special education teacher and realized pretty quickly that I was in need of a substantial amount of more skills than I had in order to help those kids out. So I went on, got my doctorate degree in clinical psychology, worked at the University of Colorado School of Medicine for about a decade running health policy and our policy center there doing state policy work, and then joined up with Wellbeing Trust about five years ago. Uh, Wellbeing Trust is a national foundation focused on advancing the mental, social, spiritual health of the nation. And in my capacity as president, I get to oversee our programs and talk to wonderful people like you trying to make a difference. Yeah. So, and actually that kind of anticipated my next question, which is, I'm always curious to know what got people into the healthcare industry. And, you know, I think you already answered that question. Well, you know, I answered it in part. I, you know, like many people, I think I grew up and my, my family was very influential on me. And so I had a grandfather that was a family physician, practiced in a rural part of East Tennessee. And so I kind of saw medicine upfront and personal um, from a very early age. Patients coming over for dinner, drug reps over for you know breakfast. It was always that world of experiencing healthcare. And it was just natural for me to become a part of it in some way. I didn't think I was going to be a psychologist. Uh, but having been in this position now for a number of years and understanding systems, I got to tell you, I mean, healthcare is one of the most convoluted systems that we have out there. So I feel like pretty blessed to have the degree that I do in order to understand it. Yeah, so kind of thinking about the space within healthcare that you're operating in, yeah. and you know, talking about, you know, I think it's the mental, spiritual, and I know I'm leaving out a couple of components, social. Yeah, but, yeah. It, but it sounds like you're really trying to focus on the entire person. Um, and then you'd also mentioned, you know, part of what you'd observe when you were in the teaching setting was trying to figure out how you can bridge the gaps between physical health and mental health. Yeah. So kind of what progress have you seen on that front so far? Well, uh, I'll tell you about the progress, but let me, first of all, let me just kind of nail the, the, the problem. And I think you've probably talked about this many times on your show, but healthcare is just inherently fragmented. We take care of pieces instead of holes. We really incentivize uh, you know, us focusing in on procedures that folk, that address very small things about our health instead of really looking at the whole more comprehensive person. And mental health is one of the most egregious offenders in that space because we have an entirely separate system for mental health and substance misuse. You know, it gets paid for differently. We train our clinicians differently. There's different policies for it. You know, it's got a different delivery setting. All of that stuff is really quite um, challenging if you're an individual looking to get access to mental health care. And so I won't say that healthcare has got it all figured out because we still have to jump through a few hoops of fire to even get access to basic healthcare at times. But when it comes to mental health, uh, what I've tried to do is to bring forward those, those uh, services and those solutions and really embed it more into the healthcare space. One example, and I think it's the, to get to your question, 
uh, primary care. I'm a big primary care advocate. I think primary care is foundational for a healthy uh, healthcare system and a healthy society. Bringing mental health into those places really allows us to meet people where they are, which is something that I think a lot of folks will say not only is good for them, but it's, it's good for the system and makes it easier for everybody. And what are some of the cha- challenges in terms of getting that integration? Because it's certain, you know, yeah. kind of as you just said, getting mental health and primary care together has been something that has been promoted a lot, I would say, yeah, over the past absolutely. few years, maybe, maybe falling off slightly during the course of the pandemic, just because yeah. other priorities came up. But it really seems kind of, as you're saying, to be a foundational block mm-hmm. for really focusing on whole person care. Yeah, I, I think it's it's primarily a cultural shift that we have to make to see things as, as always meant to be together. And I'll give you an example. So the Institute of Medicine, National now, now known as the National Academies, years ago in the 90s, they published a seminal report on primary care. And it actually said that separating out mental health from primary care led to inferior care. And so we've known for over two decades, to your point, that when you take apart those two functions, it actually doesn't work for people. And I think the reasons we haven't seen this adopted is because we are trying to unpack decades of mental health being its own separate thing. And even bringing something as simple as mental health into primary care, it's not simple uh, because you have to think about what are the competencies and training necessary for the clinicians to work together. You got to think about how to pay for it, which is a big topic of, that I've studied in, in my academic career. And then you got to think about, well, how, what are the policies that can enable it to sustain? So uh, lots of opportunities out there. But I have to tell you, um, I'm quite frustrated in 2022 that we haven't seen this become the standard of care yet, even though all the evidence points that it should. Yeah, and I guess, do you think the are you know arguably slower than preferable transition over to value-based care will help that because you know that would seem to potentially alleviate some of the payment concerns because then you've already gotten your payment per per patient and you're not trying to necessarily just bill based on the services. Yeah, I mean that's a good point. I we we could talk about this for a long time. I'm you know I am a critic of value-based care in in many ways, but I think primarily because um, who is the value accruing to? And if it's not accruing back to the patient, the family, and we're not holding, you know, systems accountable for those outcomes, then I don't really care what you call it. If we talk about moving from, you know, quantity to quality and all that stuff, uh, at the end of the day, I have really simple questions. Did the person get better? (laughs) And did they have uh, an experience that was easier and more focused on their needs? And if the answer to that is no, that's the value I care about then I think that we have to, to get into the weeds a bit more. So yes, you, the, short, the longer answer, though, uh, is that value-based care can be a vehicle for us being able to hold people as systems and clinicians accountable for addressing mental health. We've seen a little bit of movement in that direction, and the federal government's tested out way too many value-based you know, payment models over the years. And I think now it's an opportunity for us to think about really two things at once. How do you provide flexible funding to the primary care space or to the healthcare space that allows them to actually um, integrate the type of services they need to take care of their community. And then two, how do you hold them accountable for the various outcomes that I just described? I think if you don't do those things, I don't care what we call it, practices are still going to be really hesitant to engage in any type of new clinical activity, no matter how efficacious it might be. Yeah, no, I think those are very fair points. And I think there's also another question around around kind of that integration um, that even moves away from payment. But 
you know, you know, the, what comes to mind for me is, are there enough clinicians to fill these, yeah. these needs and these roles? Yeah. So that, I, I get that question a lot and it's a really important question, Matt. And so uh, the short answer is no, you know, we don't have enough clinicians and, but the longer is that we never will. I mean, I actually don't think it's possible to have enough mental health clinicians to meet the demand that our communities have. So that forces us to have a different conversation. Okay. If we're never going to have enough, it's not a pipeline issue then how do we really rethink about who we have, where they are, what they do? Um, those are foundational questions in, in you know, examining a little bit differently how we approach issues of our workforce. And I actually love to think about this issue. I think you know, primarily if we can democratize, and uh, excuse me, that's the wrong word. Democratize is an important word. That's not what I mean in this context. But it's actually, um, I can't think of what I would say. It's... Um, d- uh, It'll come to me. Better distribute. That's the word. I knew it was a D word. Distribute the clinicians into the places that people are like primary care and take them away from these historically, you know, almost artificially built clinics that people aren't showing up in. That to me is progress. So we've got people, they're just in the wrong places. They're not distributed properly and they're rarely trained uh, to be able to work in this setting. So I think the first and foremost thing is that we actually really need to reconsider who we have. Second thing is to think about democratizing my other D, uh, the, wor- the, uh, the services that we have into the community and allow for communities to actually begin to address some of these issues of mental health on their own. This is, this is commonly done in other countries. We, in the literature, we call this task shifting or task sharing. It's done in healthcare all the time, too. But this is giving people the skills upstream to be able to help one another. And that, in many ways, helps reduce the downstream demand on the system so that we're not constantly looking for more clinicians. We're doing a better job upstream preventing those people that may or may not need to be seen as urgently as others from going downstream and, and creating that logjam. Yeah, no, and that definitely makes sense. And it's, you know, kind of as you just said, getting the community more involved also seems to be a, a general direction that the healthcare industry overall is trying to be pushed because it's, you know, it seems like every day you turn around, there's another research or another study or another piece of evidence recognizing yeah. the impact of social factors and yes. your environment and everything around you. So if all that's impacting you, then you should be bringing it in and letting it influence how your care is provided as well. Yeah, you've probably read this book and talked about it a hundred times on your show before, but I'm a big fan of looking at history and how we got to where we are. And and Paul Starr wrote an amazing book. It's somewhere on the bookshelf behind me here, The Social Transformation of American Medicine. And, and I quote this frequently because I actually think it is a really wonderful summation of what you just described, which is, he said, the first sentence, the dream of reason did not take power into account. And the entire book is about how we got to the positions that we're in now in healthcare, where things are so convoluted, so expensive, so hierarchical. And, and I actually think if you strip away the power of who's got the most money, um, which clinician is most important and can you know, increase my revenue, and you really look at what's, what's reasonable, what should be expected from each of us when we enter into the healthcare system, you start to really see a lot of opportunities to do good and to unpack and change some of these really complex issues that have been uh, perpetuated over time that just don't work. So I'm a big fan of thinking about the power dynamics and how the community can better get what they need in the face of a system that really doesn't necessarily want them or need them at the table, though is being um, pushed to have them at the table more often. 
Yeah, and it seems like you know where some of the economic pieces of it are shifting and mm-hmm. shifting in a way that you know increases the the reliance upon or the the requirement of having that community at the table. That seems yeah. like a will be a powerful incentive because then it's you know even if it doesn't necessarily fully shift the power dynamic you're just describing, it's at yeah. least nudging it in a different in a different direction. It's a big, it's a tremendously positive step, and I, I don't mean to demean or minimize some of the uh, the amazing work that's being done to get community members at, uh, on the table. I mean, FQHCs, right? They have to have over half their board as community members or patients. And, and I, I think that's very positive. But what I think we're going to need to move towards is this place where our patients are really on top of making a lot of these decisions. And not just in a um, almost like a token capacity where we just say, okay, here you are, but actually are able to make some of those decisions uh, in real time. And that to me begins with having them at the table in the design. You know, um, there was some, as you know, probably better than most, you know, we've had a lot of money that's gone into communities over the years for community benefit. And health systems are mandated, especially, I mean, all, not all nonprofits are mandated to put a specific, a specific amount of resources into the community to do work for the community. And they have community advisory boards and all that stuff that you were just alluding to. And the problem, though, is that when you look at the data and the Lown Institute, if you're familiar with them, they put out a wonderful uh, quality report that had just recently, about a month ago, that looked at how much community benefit dollars were being put into the community by health systems. And it's not enough. They're not actually fulfilling their obligation under the IRS tax code to justify uh, their nonprofit status. So I think there's like issues like that I can give you 30 seconds on. But I mean, those are those are decades worth of problems that have been codified in culture and force us to really begin to, again, ask these harder questions about, well, what do we want from healthcare, and what role can our administrators play in changing this paradigm that's been set for so long? Yeah, no, and I think those are very excellent points because it's, you know, as you said, it's there, there have been a number of reports, you know, recently focusing on the fact that there's not enough benefit being given back into the community by yeah. these nonprofit institutions. And for those of you just joining, I'm talking with Dr. Benjamin Miller of the Wellbeing Trust. We've been kind of having a, a broad ranging conversation so far. Yeah, that's and great. I think, you know, I'm going to use this as a pivot point to kind of talk about the new uh, national hotline that's been established. You know, I think we're recording in the middle of July, so I think it launched a couple of weeks ago now. Um, for mental health crises and suicide prevention. So I would love to get your perspective on kind of where those hotlines were historically mm-hmm. and where you think we're going with the new hotline. Yeah, thank you. And this is a very hot topic. It actually, the, the line, the new number goes live on July 16th. So two days from now. So uh, very, uh, very promising to see what this could be. All right. So let's talk about the history here. All right, we, we could go back to 2001, and that was the first time that Congress set aside specific funds for a suicide prevention hotline. Uh, there's a federal agency that you, you're familiar with, and I'm sure others are, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, that supported this by really putting out competitive grants that it helped establish these local and regional uh, crisis call centers. So it was the first time that we actually began to see there emerge some infrastructure of a place that people could call into if they were experiencing some type of of suicidal ideation. Now, we've been able to expand that over the years. 2005, we actually named it, and we called it the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, Lifeline, excuse me, and we gave it the number 1-800-273-TALK. 
And that number was actually um, in a very famous rap song by Logic and Grammy nominated uh, rapper who talked about suicide prevention. So that number got a little bit of notoriety there. But um, for the most part, most people didn't know about it. So it limped along, got a little bit of money here and there. Um, But where things started to change is in 2020, there was a piece of legislation in Congress called the National Suicide Hotline Designation Act. It was signed into law. And it basically, the FCC was tasked to move the 1-800 number to a three-digit 988 number. And that seems really simple, but it's actually not. Because it wasn't just the transfer of these switches from 1-800 to 988. It was actually also creating a national suicide and mental health crisis hotline. So immediately, there were all these positionings of what could be expected now when you call 988 versus 911. And let me say for your listeners... If you've experienced a mental health crisis and you call 911, you're going to get a law enforcement response. There's going to be, uh, it could be fire, it could be police, but for the most part, you're going to get someone who is ill-equipped and and ill-trained in mental health to show up and help you. 988, the promise of 988 is that when you call 988, you can actually get someone who's trained in mental health so they can help you through the crisis. They can talk you through the scenarios and when necessary, they can dispatch someone to you who might be able to help you in that moment. And so there's really three legs to the stool. There's someone that needs to take the call, there's someone to show up, and then there's a place for you to go. All of this is transformative. And it goes back to the issues that we talked about a little bit a few minutes ago, that this is an opportunity right now to really transform how we think about mental health. 988, I describe it as a Trojan horse for mental health reform because there's so much you can do within the context of this very simple number for much broader things around mental health access. I'm also going to assume that with those three stools that you talked about of a place to call, someone to show up, and then a place to go, those are all very technical and complex issues uh, <laughs> yeah. that are most likely not being, ro- or the rollout is not going to go nearly as smoothly as anyone would pre- would prefer is kind of my working assumption. <laughs> it never does. Yeah, you're right. And 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 just to look at the data, I mean, there was a report that came out, a survey that came out from RAND about two months ago, and it found that literally 51% of the people they surveyed, these are leaders in states working on these issues, 51% reported that they had not been the, involved in the development of any type of strategic plan related to 988. That's two months ago. And then they also found that 16% of folks that responded to the survey said that they had not been involved in developing a budget or any type of financial support for 988. So like we were way behind the eight ball, despite the fact that everyone's known this is coming for two years. So it's a, it's a little bit of a, um, an issue. And, and I'm really anxious to see how we do when this goes live. I think for most of the country, you might at least initially get the same response that you would get if you called 911 because there's just not the infrastructure there. Other parts of the country, and it depends on where you live, um, you might get the amazingly robust um, call response that we're expecting from 988. Uh, A lot of it has to do with how you staff the centers, the resources your states have. Most states have not done any legislation to bring in resources for 988. Uh, Four states have passed a telecom fee which is going to provide more additional dollars that can support the infrastructure. I think 18 states have introduced legislation, but only four have passed it. So that's, um, <laughs> that's problematic, Matt. I mean, I, I don't know how you build a new system that's as sufficient and comprehensive as we are going to need without those resources. I just don't think people are going to move on it unless they have a little bit of support. 
I guess with the states not having done anything, is there any federal funding that's helping to, with initial support at, at a minimum? Yeah, there's been quite a bit of federal funding actually in the last year. It's one-time federal funding though. And so even just this past week, uh, with the president signing the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, that was 150 billion, or excuse me, 150 million with an M dollars that went towards uh, setting up 988. That's awesome. I mean, I, I applaud any resources that are going to go into this. But as you know, I mean, that stuff is just not sustainable. It goes away and $150 million across, you know, 50 states is not really doesn't go very far. So we need the federal government to play a role and provide that sustainable funding. We also need the states to step up and pass their own legislation that's going to provide additional resources. One final point here, mental health historically has been budget dust. I mean, it, it doesn't, when you look at overall budgets of states, um, while it, it does, people that have mental health conditions cost a lot, how much we spend on mental health is very small compared to what we spend on just in general healthcare. So mental health has always been kind of treated as this afterthought from a budgeting perspective. And I think 98 is going to force us to really pay a bit more attention to how little we've invested in that infrastructure. And in terms of that infrastructure, you know, what are some of the pieces of the infrastructure that are either being changed or being you know, developed whole cloth to help implement 988? Well, we've got regional call centers that are already in place that can take the call, but we anticipate there's going to be a substantial uptick in number of people calling into these lines. So right, the first thing you're going to have to have from an infrastructure perspective is an increased workforce. Second thing you're going to have to have is someone to show up, uh, whether it's a ride-along service, like a social worker who might be riding along with the police officer, or it's a mobile crisis unit, you know, mental health professionals that are showing up on their own. Like that's a new thing. And, and it requires us to not only think about the workforce, but also to think about, well, what, what are the, the, um, the delivery implications of having this entirely separate new service line that gets introduced within our our 988 system. So that, I mean, those are two right there. There's a thousand more. And actually we published early on in the year, a continuum of crisis care that really looks at from prevention all the way downstream to, to follow up, you know, what are the various components that need to be in place? And, uh, you know, I, I do want to be positive. I think that there will be some communities that have got this figured out, but I think for all intents and purposes, we should expect that most communities are going to slowly roll into having a type of comprehensive system that we need. Yeah, and kind of given that you know anticipated slow roll, and going to your your earlier point about you know the original hotline, yep, or or lifeline, I think you said was yep. the actual more appropriate phrasing. Yep. You know, not having as widespread awareness as would be beneficial. Is the new number also you know is that going to suffer from a similar issue up front? Like, has there been marketing or other uh, promotion of the number? No, uh, only three quarters of people surveyed at the beginning of May. Had were familiar with the the lifeline itself, so no, I don't think the general public is familiar with this and is going to be is going to know to dial nine eight eight versus nine one one. We, alongside with several other organizations, have uh, a one pager coming out. We took out a full page ad in the Washington Post for this Saturday because we want people to know that nine eight eight is here and here's what you should expect. You know, because uh, I, I think that the public has a right to know, and if we're not prepared for this launch, and it is going to be ill-fated because we're just ill-equipped, then I think we need to say as much. But for now, uh, most of the public is not aware, and we need to be doing everything we can, which is why I thank you for having me on your show, to really promote what 988 is and should be. Yeah, and I guess picking up on that last piece about what it should be, 
how do you hope it will continue to develop in the future as more experience is gained and then hopefully more funding becomes available? Well, I think like any any program in healthcare, we want to learn from it as we go. And we don't want to be just kind of set in our ways and say it has to be done this way. I think we want to look at the data. We want to see what the increase in call volume is. We want to look at the effectiveness of the interventions. We want to see how fewer people die you know, because right now, uh, quite a few p- individuals that are diagnosed with uh, mental illness experiencing a crisis are, in fact, killed by law enforcement. So there's a big problem there. But I think more more broadly, I think I think it's a useful vehicle for transformation for mental health and suicide prevention. Um, and I, I do think the the ideal scenario is really to, you know, that those in crisis will be more likely to receive help from those people most qualified to provide the support. And that, that is that whole, you know, um, sharing of information, but also just getting mental health professionals out there where people are. Uh, that's, that's the theme of 988, is that we go to where people are. We don't expect them to come to us. I think it's a, that's a very big shift. It, and would it also be fair to say that just the broader public attention and broader public push that will hopefully come around the number, you know, is it fair to say that that helps to further eliminate the stigma that has always kind of hovered over mental health yeah. and kind of inhibited access? Yeah, I mean, stigma is social and structural at the same time. And I think what we've gotten really good at as a society is talking about this. That's the social side, right? We're not as afraid to bring it up with each other, but it's the structural side that we still have some work to do. And so instead of having these really negative, almost harmful responses when someone's in a mental health crisis, we can have a helpful therapeutic and healing response, which I do think would help decrease some of the stigma. And, and fr- frankly, not even stigma, but just fear that people have about reaching out and seeking help for mental health. Yeah, no, and I think your point about the fact that it, you know there are more public and, and kind of high level discussions around mental health, it, it has certainly been something that's a noticeable change. And you know, I'd yeah. say a very positive change because you yeah. have people in very high profile positions talking about their mental health struggles which I think lets you know people who are in their daily lives that aren't in a public spotlight feel well. If this person can talk about it, then it's better. You know, it's okay for me to do it too. Yeah, and that's a, I think that's a beautiful thing. I mean, we should all be comfortable to talk about our mental health. And a homework assignment I give to a lot of people is, you know, when you go home tonight, when you get done with work, and you're talking to your friends or your family, you know, just tell them how you're doing. And I think what you'll find is that it naturally progresses into a conversation about emotions and your, your, how you feel. And, and that's mental health. I mean, mental health is really not that complex when you break it down. I mean, it has a lot to do with just your overall emotional well-being. You know, what you think about yourself, what you think about others, and, and then what you do. I mean, that, that kind of complicated triad isn't that complicated when you really think about it. So talk to other people around you. Embrace this as a norm at your dinner table. Get your kids to know that it's okay to not be okay. They can talk about it with you as parents. I mean, that's how we begin to change the culture around mental health. Uh, but getting people like Michael Phelps and Simone Biles and all these other amazing athletes to discuss mental health or celebrities, that's very positive. And that gives some, some uh, opening for you know, each of us to feel a little bit more confident that we can talk about our own mental health. Yeah, no, I think that's very important. And, and believe it or not, we're already almost out of time. So I've got one final kind of parting question is, you know, what do you hope will be the biggest positive change for mental health access and delivery in the coming year? Oh, it's a good question. I think the most positive change is that we we take away these silos that have been built artificially over the years just because we didn't know any better. And we really, truly integrate mental health into all the places that people are. 
I think if we do that from from libraries to coffee shops to primary care to prisons, I mean, that to me is transformative. And not only will it be the most effective thing that we could do, it'll save lives. And that's what I care a great deal about. So I appreciate the question. Yeah, no, and, and hopefully we will continue to see, you know, positive progress and just, you know, open discussion. But as I said, believe it or not, we are already out of time. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Benjamin Miller, for a great conversation today. Yeah, thank you so much, Matt. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to everyone listening. Keep the dialogue going and connect with me at hashtag HCDEJURE. I'm Matt Fisher. Until next time. 